Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Iran appears to have plotted to assassinate a U.S. general in Germany. Reports say Israeli intelligence agents foiled the plan when they interrogated an Iranian agent. A defeat for the city of Boston. The Supreme Court today ruled on a dispute over flying a religious flag outside Boston City Hall. We talked with the person who fought to fly the flag about what his victory means. A win for online retail giant Amazon. Workers in New York City vote against unionizing a second warehouse, dealing a blow to union organizers. The U.S. Embassy is now planning to move back into Ukraine's capital, and a group of lawmakers wrapped up their trip to the region today. While back home, Congress is prepping to spend another $30 billion towards Ukraine. Johnny Depp's defamation trial against ex-wife Amber Heard enters another week. Depp's bodyguard testifies that Heard punched Depp in the face. We also see photos of Heard's alleged injuries caused by Depp. And witnesses testify on how Heard's op-ed ruined Depp's career. A U.S. general in Germany is allegedly the target of an assassination attempt by Iran. Media and Israel say that Israeli intelligence agents interrogated an agent of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, a U.S.-designated terrorist group, and found out about Iran's triple assassination plot. The Pentagon is not commenting. Just to follow up, the Mossad said that it foiled an attack by Iran on a U.S. general in Germany. Who was the U.S. general and when did this take place? I'm not going to talk about that. The other two alleged targets are an Israeli consulate worker in Turkey and a journalist in France. Israeli TV stations broadcast an audio recording of the alleged Iranian agent making a confession about the plots. They say the Israeli agents interrogated him at his home in the Iranian capital of Tehran and presented themselves as Iranian intelligence workers. Reports say the Israeli agents released the man after the interrogation. NTD reached out to the Israeli government and the Pentagon, but didn't hear back before airtime. The State Department declined to comment. The Supreme Court ruled today on a dispute between Boston and a Christian group that wanted to fly its flag in front of City Hall. NTD's Iris Tao spoke with the group's leader. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court ruled Monday that the city of Boston violated the First Amendment when it refused to fly a Christian flag outside City Hall. Yeah, we weren't surprised by the decision, but a little bit surprised by the 9-0 decision. Boston has allowed dozens of private groups to raise their banners on a public flagpole. But when Hal Shirtleff's group applied in 2017 to fly a flag symbolizing Christianity, the city said no. He said, "We uh, please consider other secular flags. He just can't fly the Christian flag. And when I saw that, that sentence, I said, we have a case here that we should win. The city told him that the separation of church and state wouldn't allow the flag to fly. But the high court said Monday that argument doesn't fly. In his opinion, Justice Breyer wrote that Boston's flag-raising program does not express government speech. The government thus cannot discriminate based on religious viewpoint, which Breyer noted is exactly what Boston did in this case. 
Shirtleaf, meanwhile, believes the city misunderstood the First Amendment, as many others have. In fact, I'm, I'm hearing some outrageous things like uh, high school principals, elementary school principals are telling children they can't bring candy canes because it's, it's shaped like a J and it has a Christian uh, it has a Christian allegory behind it. And it's totally ludicrous. And a lot of people just buy into it because they just don't know the Constitution and the First Amendment. Shirtleaf's organization works to teach individuals about the Constitution. But he said this case, which they fought for years, did something bigger. We taught the whole country uh, due, due to this case. And uh, so people will have to look at that First Amendment and say, no, it doesn't mean you can't say, God bless you in a public building. The Monday decision also favored the position taken by the Biden administration, which sided with camp constitution and argued that a flag raising program is a public forum, just like an open mic night. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Amazon employees at a New York City warehouse today voted against unionizing. That's a win for Amazon, which fought against unionizing efforts. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from New York. Last month, Amazon employees in Staten Island formed Amazon's very first labor union in the U.S. This week, the second union could have formed, but most employees voted against it in a 60-40 outcome. Progressive caucus members such as Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez rallied with Amazon's labor union in Staten Island ahead of the vote. Nevertheless, no victory for the union. The union's leader says New York City is one of the most expensive places to live in the U.S. and the cost of living is only going up with inflation. He wants a wage increase from $18 an hour to $30 an hour. Also, more breaks and benefits. You can't raise wages arbitrarily in the way that they're demanding and not have a consequence someplace else. Wayne Weingarten is a senior fellow with the Pacific Research Institute. He says union efforts, such as wage increases, can make it less profitable for businesses to operate, which might end up hurting the locations where unions were formed. If you look at car manufacturers, right, when a lot of the new plants came in, especially foreign manufacturers who wanted to, to build in the U.S., they didn't go to Detroit, which had you know, it, it had a really strong kind of presence in terms of manufacturing, had the expertise, but the unionization made it too difficult to actually build profitably. When the nation's first Amazon union formed a month ago, Amazon objected the result, saying Amazon's labor union intimidated employees, making them vote in favor of the union. In a statement to NTD, the union's lawyer denies that and claims the opposite saying Amazon is the only party with the capacity to intimidate potential voters. Amazon can and has threatened voters with loss of employment, lower wages and generally worse working conditions if they vote for the union. The union now has one week to file an objection to the result, similar to how Amazon objected the vote last month. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. The labor union's lawyer just told NTD that the union is in fact considering filing objections. It says Amazon pressured and coerced employees into voting against unionizing. U.S. officials today announced an end-of-the-month plan to move their embassy back to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. And a group of representatives just finished up an unannounced trip to the region. The group, led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is the first official congressional delegation to have visited Ukraine following Russia's invasion. NTD's Molina Weiskup has that story. 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with Poland's president today, wrapping up an unannounced weekend trip to Europe. She's the highest ranking U.S. government official to visit war-torn Ukraine since the invasion began. And so our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is done. I am thankful for this, first of all, for this signal of powerful support of Ukraine, powerful support of the United States. That's Zelensky's message to the first official U.S. congressional delegation to have visited Ukraine following Russia's invasion. Congressman Adam Schiff was part of that delegation. Uh, if Russia can get away with this, this naked aggression, this invasion of their neighbor, uh, you know, what's uh, to make us think they'll stop uh, with Ukraine? But will Russia get away with this? A head official at the U.S. Embassy hinting today that the war could be turning a corner. I would say the message to Russia is you failed. Uh, Ukraine is still standing, the government is still functioning, and we're going back to Lviv first and then Kiev to help the government. She announced their plans to move the U.S. Embassy back to Ukraine's capital by the end of this month. Other Western countries have already moved their embassies back to Kiev. The U.S. diplomat says it's ramping up assistance to Ukraine and neighboring countries. Just to note that we are significantly increasing what we're providing right now. Uh, there have been, uh, we have given uh, howitzers recently, which are quite uh, powerful weapons, and over half of what we have uh, uh, told Ukraine we would give them are already in the country. Congress already approved $14 billion in emergency aid to Ukraine in March and is now working on another $33 billion package. Sending more money to Ukraine has gained bipartisan support, but there is one roadblock slowing down the process. That is the question of whether to tack on 10 to $20 billion more in COVID response. Republicans have said they'll push back if these two initiatives, the Ukraine money and the COVID response money, are combined. So these are the details that the Senate is having to work out this week before they can come to a final vote on this money for Ukraine. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. There's a mysterious Ukrainian war hero who has been hailed as the ghost of Kyiv. Not only did they not die in combat, but they also weren't real. That's according to the Ukrainian military. NTD's Kevin Hogan brings us more. The tale says the anonymous Ukrainian fighter jet pilot allegedly shot down six Russian warplanes in one day. The claim was circulated on social media since the beginning of Russia's invasion. The media ran with the story, and official Ukrainian social media channels promoted it as well. Those include the Twitter accounts of the Ukrainian government and one of the country's former presidents. The official Ukrainian government's Twitter account wrote, People call him the ghost of Kyiv, and rightly so. This UAF ace dominates the skies over our capital and country and has already become a nightmare for invading Russian aircrafts. As the invasion went on, many people questioned whether the ghost was real. But not until the ghost's death made headlines did the Ukrainian military admit they never existed. One of those headlines is an article by the Times of London last week. The paper identified the ghost as Stepan Tarabalka and said he flew a MiG-29 fighter jet. The report went on to say that the ghost shot down 40 Russian aircraft but was then killed when he was overwhelmed by enemy forces. As a result of the article, the Ukrainian Air Force clarified that Tarabalka did die in a battle but was not the ghost of Kyiv. They said the ghost is a fictional character, adding it was created to lift Ukrainian morale. A Ukrainian Air Force spokesman told the New York Times that on March 13th, Major Tarabalka died in an air battle with superior Russian forces. 
All this while Ukraine continues to ask the U.S. to give its forces American fighter jets like F-16s so they can help take away Russia's air advantage. But senior Pentagon officials said the Ukrainian Air Force relies on Russian-made aircraft and that the U.S. is not planning to send out F-16s to Ukraine. A senior defense official said last week that Washington has been helping coordinate with other countries that have the types of fighter jets that Ukrainians fly. Those are nations in the Eastern Bloc. The White House press correspondents' dinner returned last Saturday night. President Biden joined the dinner as the first president to do so in six years. Here's more. Biden made light of the criticisms he has faced in the past 15 months, one of which is his sliding approval rating. I'm really excited to be here tonight with the only group of Americans with a lower approval rating than I have. Biden also talked about the Let's Go Brandon slogan. Well, Republicans <laughs> seem to support one fellow, some guy named Brandon. He's having a really good year, and I'm kind of happy for him. Comedian Trevor Noah and the president both headlined the event. The White House Correspondents Association skipped the dinner for the last two years because of the pandemic. Former President Trump chose not to attend while he was in office. A federal jury has convicted a New York Police Department veteran of assaulting an officer during the breach of the U.S. Capitol. The police veteran claimed he was defending himself when he tackled the officer and grabbed his gas mask. Thomas Webster, seen here in the red jacket, was the first January 6th defendant to be tried on an assault charge and the first to present a jury with a self-defense argument. Webster testified he was trying to protect himself from a rogue cop who punched him in the face. Webster accused the Metropolitan Police Department officer of, of instigating the confrontation. The officer denied punching Webster, who will be sentenced in September. Coming up, allegations involving a New York TV anchor in an undercover sting targeting pedophiles. He reportedly tried to meet who he believed was a 15-year-old boy and sent sexually explicit messages. And the most revered tournament in tennis and their controversial ban on Russian and Belarusian players. What Rafael Nadal has to say about Wimbledon. That and more on NTD News. in New York that exposes child predators caught on video a TV anchor driving three hours to meet who he thought was a 15-year-old boy. The group says the man was attempting to have sex with the minor. Here's more. Zach, right? 607 predator hunters posted a video on social media last week. The 10-minute video shows them confronting Zach Wheeler, a TV anchor with WETM 18 News. In the video, it appears Wheeler arrived at the scene trying to meet whom he thought was a 15-year-old boy. The group then reads the alleged chat log. You said, look at your beautiful eyes. I said, I think we'd hit it off, honestly. You're into thick, chubbier guys. Any shirtless pits? Don't interrupt me yet, please. That already sounds bad. Yeah, that already sounds bad. Josh, I want to cuddle. Who would say that to a minor if now you're trying to say you were here to just help him and drop him off? Listen, you wanted I, to cuddle. I was not the TV anchor denies he intended to have sex with a teenager. I was here to talk to that kid 
to get him off of these apps. Huh. That's right. what it is. Listen, I'm not having sex with that guy. Well, let's get, let's rewind to where you said you didn't think, you didn't why know you he was guys, 18. Wait, why do you guys per- do this to gay and lesbian people? Do you go no, 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 no. We do it to everybody. We do it to everybody. He later asked 607 Predator Hunters whether they need money and offered to help them get on TV. The group says they've turned over the information to state police. In a statement, WETM said they are looking into the issue and pulling the anchor off the air. Johnny Depp's defamation trial against his ex-wife Amber Heard has entered another week. Today we heard from Depp's bodyguard, who alleged Heard punched Depp in the face. Heard will soon take the stand to tell her side of the story. NTD's Grace Coulter has more on today's testimonies. To win his case, actor Johnny Depp has to prove that his ex-wife and fellow actor Amber Heard defamed him, ruining his reputation and career. So far, many witnesses have provided graphic details about the pair's unquestionably tumultuous marriage. But fewer have given testimony corroborating Depp's claim that an op-ed about domestic abuse penned by Heard in 2018 cost him his career. Today, however, three witnesses backed up Depp's claim. Depp's agent testified that after the op-ed, it was impossible to get Depp a studio film. For, on, you know, with respect to Johnny, it, it was it was catastrophic because it was coming from, you, you know, uh, a first-person account. It was not from a journalist. It was not from someone observing. It was from someone saying, this happened to me. In the op-ed, Heard alleges she was the victim of domestic abuse and called out Hollywood for supporting her abuser. While she didn't name Depp, his team argues that it was clear she was referring to him. Depp has denied all allegations of domestic abuse. Entertainment lawyer Richard Marks, who testified as a forensic expert for Depp's legal team, said the op-ed got Depp cancelled by Hollywood. Furthermore, a licensing and damaging expert testified that Depp's online reputation took a major hit after Heard's op-ed was published. This was based on analysis of Google search results. In addition, Depp's bodyguard testified Monday that Heard threw a Red Bull can at Depp's back and spat on him during a brawl in 2015. He also alleged Heard punched Depp in the face. The last testimony of the day was from Erin Fallaty, Heard's former nurse. In a pre-recorded disposition, Fallaty said Heard texted her four photos on May 22, 2016, after Depp allegedly threw a cell phone at Heard's face. Jurors were shown the photos, showing red marks around Heard's eye. However, Heard's lawyer noted that the nurse did not include any information about the text in her treatment notes. Heard is expected to take the stand on Wednesday. Grace Coulter, NTD News. An arrest warrant has been issued for an Alabama jail official who disappeared with an inmate on Friday. Lauderdale County Sheriff Rick Singleton announced today that Corrections Officer Vicki White is charged with first-degree permitting or facilitating escape. The officer was set to retire the day she disappeared and was last seen taking the inmate Casey White to a mental health evaluation. Vicki and Casey White are not related, but police believe that Vicki willingly facilitated Casey's escape. The inmate was scheduled for a trial next month on a capital murder charge. The U.S. Marshals Service said Sunday that it is offering up to $10,000 for information leading to the capture of Casey White. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee has paused all death row executions for the rest of this year. He plans to review the state's lethal drug testing procedures. 
NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Death row inmates scheduled for execution have a constitutional right to a quick and painless death. Monday, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee officially paused executions until the end of this year. The state had five scheduled. He said there was an oversight in the preparations for the lethal injection of a recent death row inmate. Tennessee protocols require that lethal injection drugs go through a sterile procedure to eliminate endotoxins that may cause negative consequences. The governor is ordering a third-party review of the drug testing procedure after the Department of Corrections didn't check for these toxins. Public defender Kelly Henry explains what it means if endotoxins are present. So endotoxins are, as the word suggests, toxic. And when you introduce that toxic bacteria into the sterile preparation, you increase the risk that that sterile preparation is going to have negative consequences for the person to whom it's injected. In July 2018, drug companies stopped providing a drug called bentobarbital for executions. So the Tennessee Department of Corrections changed to a three-drug protocol. Inmates claim the procedure causes cruel and unusual punishment. Henry witnessed an execution with the new protocol. She says upon injection of the first drug, the inmate will have a drowning feeling and that the second drug causes a feeling of being buried alive. And then finally, he will feel as if a searing, burning fire is being injected into his veins as potassium chloride travels from the IV site to the heart, finally causing death. Governor Lee said in a statement, the death penalty is an extremely serious matter, and I expect the Tennessee Department of Correction to leave no question that procedures are correctly followed. NTD reached out to the Department of Corrections, but they declined to comment. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. As inflation continues to soar, some voters are reconsidering which party they'll support as the November midterm elections approach. We hear from Arizona's Hispanic community. NTD's Chenny Wu has that story. Ricardo Aguirre stands at the door of one of his two taco trucks. As he opens the refrigerator door, he laments the soaring cost of tomatoes, onions, meat and cilantro, which have doubled in price in recent months, hammering his Phoenix-based catering business. In the aisles of a local Costco in Phoenix, Arizona, Aguirre tells us just how much more it's costing him to keep shop. Six dollars for this before you could get it for $2.99, double in price. A load of groceries quickly piled up. At checkout, the grand total was just under $500. Aguirre, a Hispanic voter who backed Democrats, including President Biden, has a warning for the party if prices don't get under control before November's midterm elections. If, believe me, if the Rep Republican Party has something better to offer us, you know, I will vote, you know, Republican. He's one of 35 Hispanic voters who told Reuters how soaring inflation is causing them to seriously consider switching their vote this year. A majority of them said they usually vote Democratic, but were now willing to back Republicans at all levels this November. Retiree Jose Mendez is one of them. Mendez, who has voted Democratic every year since 1988, had driven 45 minutes to hunt for bargains. He said this year is the first time the economy and inflation might switch him to the Republicans. I'm not married with any side. It's just that whatever is better for us, the way they're managing right now the economy is not 100% in my side. 
Experts say even a small loss of support among Hispanics, a key component of the Democratic coalition of voters that brought President Biden to power, could mean the loss of the House of Representatives and possibly the Senate for Democrats. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Turning to sports, a baseball bat used by Hall of Famer Jackie Robinson sold for more than $1 million at auction Saturday. Golden Auctions announced the sale and said the bat came straight from Robinson's widow, Rachel Robinson. The $1.08 million price tag fell just short of the $1.2 million paid for a Babe Ruth bat, the most ever for such a piece of baseball memorabilia. The bat was used by Robinson in the 1949 All-Star Game, which was played at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Robinson, who won MVP that same year, was best known for breaking baseball's color barrier in 1947. His jersey number, 42, has since been retired by every team in the league. The New York Mets have designated for assignment eight-time All-Star Robinson Cano. The 39-year-old was hitting just 195 in 12 games this year, though he's still owed roughly $40 million over the next two seasons. The Mets now have seven days to place him on outright waivers or trade him. But a trade is unlikely given how much money is left on his contract. If Cano clears waivers, he can reject a minor league assignment, making an eventual release the most likely outcome. Cano, who played his first nine seasons for the Yankees, was once headed toward a Hall of Fame destination until a 2018 suspension for performance-enhancing drugs. He was then caught again last year, resulting in a year-long penalty. A pair of Game 1s are on the NBA schedule tonight as Round 2 of the playoffs begins. But the status of Sixers star Joel Embiid remains the biggest story. NTD's Dave Martin has more. ESPN is reporting that there's optimism Embiid could return as soon as Game 3 or 4. The MVP candidate suffered an orbital fracture and concussion in Thursday's Game 6 win over Toronto. And that's in addition to the torn right thumb ligament he's already playing with. Although the Sixers are still left with former MVP James Harden, Embiid led the NBA in scoring in the regular season. Philly's opponent, the Heat, aren't exactly healthy either, as five-time All-Star Jimmy Butler is among six players listed as questionable for tonight's game, which takes place in Miami. Out West, Phoenix hosts Dallas in their opener. Suns guard Devin Booker made an early return Thursday from a hamstring strain, but struggled shooting the ball. His health status going forward may be the biggest factor in the series. For the Mavs, guards Luka Doncic and Jalen Brunson scored more than half the team's points against Utah and will need to make a similar contribution to beat the top-seeded Suns. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players has been met with criticism by both the men's and women's tours. On Sunday, one of the all-time greats, Rafael Nadal, chimed in as well. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Nadal, like Djokovic last week, disagreed with the All England Club's controversial decision. It's very unfair for the players, for my colleagues. There is little they can do. What fault is it of theirs, what's happening now with the war? While Nadal called it unfair, Djokovic reiterated his position against it. I still stand by my position that I don't support the decision. I think it's, it's just not fair, it's not right. 
Wimbledon's ban will exclude second-ranked player Daniel Medvedev, among others. The All England Club, which hosts Wimbledon, defended its actions in a press release saying it would be unacceptable for the Russian regime to derive any benefits from the involvement of Russian or Belarusian players with the championships. While men's and women's tours, the ATP and WTA, have criticized the ban, Wimbledon and the other three Grand Slams are independent of them. Yet those tours grant players significant individual ranking points based on their Grand Slam finishes, making them a must-play event. Dave Martin, NTD News. Coming up, a Republican campaign event comes under attack in Portland, Oregon. Aggressors dressed in black hurl smoke grenades, paint-filled balloons, and fireworks, shutting down the rally. And two of the richest men on the planet want to use cryptocurrency to combat spam on social media. That and more on NTD News. Republican campaign event in Portland, Oregon was attacked and shut down over the weekend by aggressors dressed in black. They're believed to be members of the anarcho-communist group Antifa. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. We will not be intimidated. Does free speech still exist in Portland, Oregon? According to the Republican mayor of Sandy, Stan Pulliam, the answer is no, because Antifa is ruling the streets and shutting down anyone they don't agree with. On Saturday, Pulliam's gubernatorial campaign event became their latest target. Videos posted online by Pulliam show black-clad demonstrators hurling smoke grenades, paint-filled balloons and fireworks. According to police, two people were injured, but due to lack of resources, officers weren't able to arrive on the scene until after the attack. We called the police. We called 911. In fact, at the Justice of Peace Center, we were just outside of their headquarters, sat on hold for over 20 minutes. No police officers ever arrived until the very end just to take our statement. Pulliam has since released a plan to, quote, end Antifa's control of Portland for good, which includes tripling the state police force. Grace Coulter, NTD News. In Southern California, a district attorney launched a campaign to combat illegal street racing. One actor who has starred in films on the topic also joined him to help warn people about the danger of such fast driving. Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer announced on Friday a national public service announcement campaign to combat illegal street racing. The dangerous form of racing exploded in popularity during the COVID-19 pandemic. Street racing and street takeovers today in our nation, and quite frankly all across the world, it's out of control. We know it. These events are killing innocent people, and we are fighting like heck to hold street racers and street exhibitionists accountable. We are doing everything we can to get justice for victims. The campaign is being made available to every law enforcement agency in the U.S. in an effort to curb injuries and deaths related to street racing. Sung Kang of Fast and Furious also joined the attorney to warn drivers of the deadly dangers of illegal street racing and street takeovers. It's You see the movies and you see what we do and you want to emulate it, but 
Let's pretend. Let's pretend. There is no part two. There is no rewind. You get in an accident in one of these, and you will die. Man, not only that, you will kill somebody. Others joined to raise awareness. Lily Puckett, founder of the nonprofit Street Racing Kills, hopes to educate young people on the reality of street racing. In 2014, her 16-year-old daughter died in a crash while riding as a passenger in a street racer's car. I would say one of the things that, that you think is never going to happen to you, you just think you're not going to be that person, and you could be that person. You can be that person to kill someone. You can be that person that ends up being injured, you know, handicapped for the rest of your life or just even losing your life. And you're... Your loved ones are waiting for you at home. Your loved ones want to see you again. You want to come home every day after you leave your house. So think about it twice. Actor Cody Walker, who couldn't be at the announcement, pre-recorded his message. I think a lot of the time when those of us that want to go fast or we have something to prove, we don't take into consideration the, the lives of those around us. It's not just you that you're putting in jeopardy. It's everybody else around you. So don't be dumb. Take it to the track. There's somebody at home that loves you, that's expecting you to return. It's not worth the risk, I promise. Walker helped complete the final scenes for a character for Furious 7 after his brother, Paul Walker, died when the speeding Porsche he was riding in crashed into a power pole. Now we, I play pretend for a living. You know, and at minimum, if we can use our hobby for something positive, you know, and then maybe it was, you know, maybe, you know, that's how I use, you know, my blessings in life, right? So I, I'll be the last person to say that we did something special. The Orange County District Attorney's Office joined 10 other Orange County law enforcement agencies, including the California Highway Patrol, to form strategic traffic enforcement against racing and reckless driving to crack down on illegal street racing. Two of the richest men in the world are toying with the idea of using cryptocurrency to do away with spam bots on Twitter. And TD's Phil Zoe has the story. Star of Shark Tank and billionaire Mark Cuban suggested we use Dogecoin, a meme cryptocurrency, to battle spam bots on Twitter. Elon Musk, the richest person in the world and soon to be owner of Twitter, said the suggestion was not a bad idea. Yeah, I think Mark Cuban his idea was probably a little bit half-baked. Brian Horning is a cybersecurity expert who deals with many issues, including spam. What he laid out is kind of like an eBay-ish kind of honor system. Cuban suggested everyone contributes one Dogecoin in order to post unlimited tweets. But if anyone challenges a tweet and a human being confirms that the tweet is indeed spam, the challenger wins the Dogecoin. But if it's not spam, the challenger will lose his Dogecoin. Where I think there's some holes is you could have groups of people who band together offline to maybe team up against somebody to make their spam report um, seem not real or not be approved. Elon Musk recently said spam bots are the single most annoying problem on Twitter. So far, Mark Cuban's post has been liked 10,000 times. Phil Zoe, NTD News. In Japan, when cherry blossoms bloom, families and friends gather together to celebrate the beginning of spring. Chicago held its very own cherry blossom celebration over the weekend, featuring a group of Japanese performing art artists. Let's take a look. 
The visitors at Chicago's Jackson Park over the weekend saw more than just the beauty of cherry blossoms. As part of the city's first Haname Sakura or cherry blossom celebration, the performance of taiko drumming and classical Japanese dance captivated park goers. Yoshinojo Fujima and fellow dancers performed a type of classical Japanese dance called Shubukai. It originated in the Japanese city of Shizuoka, home to Mount Fuji. It's to celebrate nature, and since it's in the spring, we're using it with the sakura flowers. For the sakura flowers is that in Japan, it is the sign of spring coming. And since you appreciate all the four seasons, uh, the sakura in particular is celebrated as the coming of spring. In the busy, busy lives that we have today, uh, it's always nice to pause and take a moment to appreciate nature and, and the world that we're in. Kyoto Aoki came from a Japanese performing arts family of several generations, tracing back to the Edo period between the year of 1603 and 1868. We had a uh, restaurant, an okiya, geisha house restaurant, and so everyone that was there had to learn all of the performing traditions. And my father was the last generation to learn that in the okiya house. Born in Chicago, Aoki studied taiko drumming under her Tokyo-born father and has been performing for 20 years since she was seven years old. Even so, Aoki says taiko drumming is complex. It's not necessarily rhythmic cyclical rhythms, but more long phrases. So it takes maybe a year and a half to learn a new piece and then another year and a half to really play it so it sounds like music. Fujima and Aoki, both second-generation Japanese-Americans, take pride in their Japanese heritage. They hope to carry forward their culture by sharing it with the local communities through events like Hanami Sakura. Coming up, Shanghai is still struggling with a COVID surge. The city reported dozens of new cases outside the areas under lockdown on Monday. And police are protesting in Paris after an officer was charged with manslaughter for opening fire on a car driving towards him, killing two people. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Shanghai authorities reported 58 new CCP virus cases outside areas under lockdown on Monday. This has been a setback following news that no cases had been confirmed outside lockdown areas for two days this past weekend. Here are the details. Reports of new COVID-19 cases outside of Shanghai's lockdown area could spell a setback for the city's battle against infections. Authorities reported 58 new cases on Monday after two days of no new confirmed cases outside quarantined areas over the weekend. However, other data showed encouraging trends, with overall local cases down to 6,804 from 7,189 the previous day. Despite the drop in infections, more fences were erected at some residential blocks in Shanghai on Monday. And footage filmed by Reuters also showed streets largely devoid of pedestrians and traffic. Tough coronavirus measures in Shanghai have stirred rare public anger. 
with millions of the city's 25 million people stuck indoors for more than a month. Some sealed inside fenced-off residential compounds and many struggling to secure daily necessities. Meanwhile, in Beijing, authorities pressed on with testing millions of people on the May Day holiday. China's zero-COVID policy is increasingly out of step with the rest of the world, where many governments have eased restrictions or thrown them off altogether, with the goal of living with COVID. In Paris, policemen took to the streets in protest after an officer was detained and charged with manslaughter. Colleagues and police union officials spoke out against what they say is injustice. NTD's France correspondent David Vives tells us more. Just hours after projections showed that President Emmanuel Macron had won a second term, a tragedy occurred just a few hundred meters from the Eiffel Tower. On the Pont Neuf Bridge, policemen opened fire on a car which was said to be driving towards them and against the direction of traffic. The shooting left the driver and one passenger dead and another passenger injured. While police is investigating the incident, one policeman has been detained and charged with manslaughter. On Monday, several hundred protesters gathered near the Pont Neuf in support of the officer who was charged. Police union spokesperson Thierry Claire says he cannot understand why the policeman has been detained. Really, what we don't understand is why they say manslaughter. There is no presumption of innocence. This policeman is now finding himself without pay or a job. Paris residents also demonstrated in support of police officers. It is absolutely abnormal that police officers lose their presumption of innocence. It seems that laws are made to protect the thugs. On Sunday, during May Day protests, violent demonstrators ransacked several businesses. Protesters hurled objects and threw tear gas at riot police as shop windows were broken and walls vandalized. Thick plums of smoke rose from the streets as tear gas canisters exploded. Claire says incidents over the last days show how society is becoming increasingly violent. The police officer has to work in a society of violence where respect is becoming more and more rare. The idea of respect toward police officers we can also find in the case of other public servants, such as teachers. In France, manslaughter is punishable by up to 30 years in prison. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. The British Ministry of Defence says over 250 people crossed the English Channel in small boats to the UK on Sunday, and more have reportedly arrived today. It comes after an apparent 11-day pause amid windy weather. The Ministry of Defence took command of migrant operations in April, when the British government also announced its plan to send some migrants crossing to the UK to Rwanda in East Africa. Here's NTD's Jane Werrell with more. While the government's plan to send migrants to Rwanda is designed as a deterrent, some say in this case the deterrent may have been the choppy seas. There's been an apparent 11-day pause in people crossing the channel in small boats. It's not unusual to have such pauses, with windy weather making the crossing even more dangerous. Footage from Sunday shows people believed to have crossed the channel in small boats being taken ashore in Dover. The Minister of Defence says seven boats carrying 254 people made the crossing on Sunday. This means at least 6,947 people reached the UK in small boats from France so far this year, according to the PA News Agency. Last year, 27 people died when their boat sank during the crossing. 
The Nationality and Borders Bill, which makes it a criminal offence to knowingly arrive in the UK illegally, became law on Thursday. Channel in dangerous small boats. Last month, the Home Secretary signed an agreement with Rwanda, announcing that some making the trip from France to the UK will be sent 4,000 miles away to the East African country. Her plans were criticised by charities and opposition parties, but she's defended the plans, saying it will break the smugglers' business model and prevent loss of life. NTD News. The combined forces of the pandemic lockdown and the war in Ukraine have sent cooking oil prices spiraling. Fish and chip shops in Britain have seen the price of sunflower oil nearly double. Experts say prices could plateau in the fall, but the rising costs of energy and fertilizer may still push them higher. NTD's Joy Dugood has more. Global cooking oil prices have been rising since the pandemic began and the war in Ukraine has added to the price pressure. One fish and chip shop owner in London is worried for the future of the national dish. He said he used to pay £22 for a jug of sunflower oil. Now it costs him £43. Are we going to get any? I don't know. Are we going to start trading again with Russia and Ukraine? I don't know. Um, this, this I don't know factor is causing huge concerns for our industry. Uh, fish and chips is the British national um, um, product, um, the, the, the family's favourite dish, um, we're, we're, we may lose it if it carries on like this. But what worries Niazi even more than rising prices is the thought of running out of sunflower oil completely. He's thinking of selling his truck and using the cash to stock up on oil to ensure his business can keep operating. It's very, very scary, and I don't know how our industry, fish and chips industry, is going to cope. The war in Ukraine has interrupted shipments and sent cooking oil prices spiralling. Ukraine and Russia together supply nearly three-quarters of the world's sunflower oil. Analytics expert Steve Matthews says the cooking oil shortage started before the war in Ukraine. It's possible that they have plateaued in the short run. However, the fundamentals are still extremely bullish for prices. And the reason for that is not necessarily or not entirely the Ukraine war, but rather the already existing shortage and price increase in fertilizers globally. Last year, drought pummeled Canada's canola crop and Brazil's soybean crop, while heavy rains affected palm oil production in Malaysia. Labour shortages in lockdown and steadily increasing demand from the biofuel industry also lead to higher prices. That ultimately largely comes down to energy. The availability of natural gas uh, in particular has caused massive increases in prices of fertilizer, which will lead to farmers using less fertilizer this year, which will lead to smaller crops, which will lead to higher prices in the long run. At this restaurant in Istanbul, they tried to absorb the surging cost of the sunflower oil. But in early April, with oil costing nearly four times as much as it did in 2019, they had to raise their prices. For the first time this year, we have seen customers leave the store after hearing the price of the battered fish. In previous years, they see the price increase but wouldn't say anything. But this year, the customers are leaving. They cannot afford it. Industry experts say prices could moderate by autumn when farmers in the northern hemisphere harvest corn and soybeans. But this depends on a good harvest and the danger of bad weather looms menacingly. Joy Dugid, NTD News. 
Coming up, with inflation at an all-time high, how you can save money on personal tech expenses such as app subscriptions and phone bills. And an American cat in London that captured the hearts of millions online. We'll take a look at some of her adventures when we return from this short break. cost for nearly everything continues to rise, and when it comes to personal tech, you may be overspending and draining your budget. Experts say now is the time to check how much you're spending on your favorite gadgets, phone bills, and app subscriptions. Here's how you can trim your tech budget without missing out. Inflation is at a 40-year high, and with the price of nearly everything going up, your personal tech budget could be taking a hit. The amount of money that we're spending on tech is getting bigger every single year, and it makes sense, right? We're working remote, we're doing things kind of on the go. Personal finance coach Julie Almantaveras has these five tips to cut down on the tech expenses. Number one, ask for loyalty discounts. She says call your phone service provider every six months to see if you can get a better deal. Number two, limit the number of devices you own and those pricey upgrades. Don't feel pressured to buy the latest and greatest because oftentimes they're layered with things that you probably don't even need. Number three, trim your wireless bills. The plans served up by the big carriers aren't always the cheapest, so explore other companies with budget phone plans. The difference between the plans can be very big, a prepaid plan versus a normal plan that can be in the hundreds of dollars. Number four, cut down on the streaming or rotate plans. You may not need them all together at once. And finally, number five, cancel those online subscriptions from apps to online tools and services. Look at what you can cancel now. Kind of keep a streamline limited and save a lot of money along the way. And finally, an American cat exploring London on her owner's bike has become a hit on social media. Here's NTD's Eddie Aitken with more. Sigrid is a social media star. The long-haired Norwegian forest cat cycles a few times a week with her owner, exploring London and meeting fans. Sigrid and her owner, Travis Nelson, are American and moved to London two years ago. Nelson had been taking Sigrid out for walks when they lived in California. Um, so when we finally decided to do the bike rides in London, you know, it had been four years of walks and adventures. And so when I put her on the bike basket, she thought nothing of it. She was just immediately fine with it. Each ride needs to be carefully prepared. Nelson attaches the front basket on his bike, screws in the pole for the action camera, and sets up the power supply. Once Sigrid has her harness on, he secures her with a short cable to prevent her from jumping out. Although he says she has never tried. And there's one more step. I always put sunscreen on her ears, um, which is her least favorite part of the entire process, but she tolerates it. Um, but she's white and we gotta protect her ears because you know, she gets a lot of sun exposure. Sigrid is deaf, a condition that affects around 70% of white cats with blue eyes. I wouldn't say that it's the reason why she does this well, but I think it complements her kind of like bold personality and kind of works for her. I often say it's not a disability for her, it's a superpower. It, it makes her a better cat. <laughs> The duo have more than 300,000 followers on social media, with some videos surpassing 4 million views. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. 
And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.